Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping quit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hey, thank you, everyone. Please, thank you, everyone. Sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before I want to jump into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Patrick Baker. If you haven't heard it, Patrick is an incredibly cool customer, and his work speaks volumes for his endless talents. Like I said at the end of the interview... We are going to be hearing his name for many, many years to come. Believe me when I say that. So if you haven't heard the interview, I challenge you to give the episode a listen after you finish with this one. All right, so welcome to episode 120. We have a truly incredible episode for you today. I sit down with an old friend that I have not spoken to in over 20 years, and that friend is Army combat veteran Benjamin Sledge. He'll be talking about his experiences during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, the horrors and hardships that veterans experience, and the immense struggles that veterans face when they return from a two-decade-long war. Plus, Ben gives his opinions on the end of the Afghanistan war and what led him to write his best-selling memoir, Where Cowards Go to Die. Honestly, this is one of the best and most important interviews that we have done on this show. So let's get Ben out here. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and join me in welcoming all the way from the great state of Colorado, Army combat veteran turned best-selling author, Benjamin Sledge. Hello, welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out in your neck of the woods today? For me, uh, we're about to get we're about to get a snowstorm. Apparently, so <laughs> that means good skiing uh, up in the mountains. Hopefully, you a good skier. I am. Uh, my grandfather required it when we were growing up. So I would fly out every spring break to Greeley where he lived. Funny enough, funny story about him. He was General Patton's scotch supplier during World War II. He ended up just requiring both me and my brother to learn how to ski. And so I, I learned how to ski very fast and very aggressively. And that's still the way that I like to ski. There are worse jobs that you could have had during the Second World War. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I start my interviews off the same way. And is how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world so far? Uh, 
I feel like things have gotten back to normal here with the exception of inflation. There are some weird things that you see here and there. Like there was a, a woman the other day, I was taking my kids ice skating and she was just outside. I, I don't know. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she was sick, but she was at a coffee shop. She was outside in a mask and every, and she was talking to somebody who was unmasked and would take her mask down and then take a sip of coffee. And I was just like, okay, if you're sick, you shouldn't be, you know, yeah. one, talking to this person, but two, you know, you're outside. It seems a little bit extreme, but it, I, I don't know. It's its own world now that I think we'll look back on someday and be like, what was going on? <laughs> but yeah. other than that, it's, it's been, uh, you know, it's been predominantly normal for, for me the last year. Colorado eased a lot of restrictions and it, it was, uh, it, you know, it was great. Uh, other than that, it's just been, I feel like 2022 has been harder just because of, of family stuff with um, people getting sick just with non-COVID related issues. So that's right. that. All right. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born? And what was it like to grow up there? Uh, I was born in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Well, technically I was born in Tulsa, but I've, I've always grew up in Broken Arrow um, because that's where you know the birth certificate is. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, my parents met at Bible College at Rama Bible College back in like I think it was like the late seventies, I, I believe. And then from there, I was born in eighty one, and uh, and then I joined the military when I was eighteen. I was like, I got to get out of this town. I'm out because it was a small suburb of Tulsa. And then from there, um, just kind of ended up traveling all over the place, and was the the one person in my family that's the lone wolf who was like, I'll live wherever I want to. I'll, I do what I want, you know, like Cartman on. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, full disclosure for those listening, before we go any further, you and I have known each other at least 25 years now, though we haven't spoke to each other yeah. in quite a long time. So with that in mind, uh, what are your favorite memories from Broken Era High School? Man, you know, I, I had a really good group of friends that I'm still – close with. And I go home to Oklahoma yearly uh, to the BA area to interact with those friends. And and I still see them when I'm out. It's <sighs> I, I, okay. Here, here's a, here's a memory for you that you're going to absolutely freak out on. Um, cruising Memorial was a favorite memory. <laughs> it's literally where all of us would get in our cars and drive down Memorial uh, in Tulsa. And we turn around at this QT and then you'd park in these like parking lots and everybody would talk to each other. And it was just, it was a cool time. But I, I, looking back now, I'm like, why did we do that? I guess we were just bored teenagers. So that was a favorite memory. Um, just my friends inside Broken Arrow High School. Like I said, I'm still, still friends with them today. And then just the kindness of Oklahomans has always been something that just has stuck with me throughout the years. And so I, I actually... You know, a lot of people are like they get out of high school and they never stay in contact with anybody because they're like, that sucked. This was awful, whatever. And granted, there were aspects of my life growing up, whether it was bullying or something else. But overall, I have I have really positive memories of my time being in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. You know, it's funny. A couple of weeks ago, someone was talking to me. They haven't seen me in a long time. They're like, I remember you from high school. I said, what do you remember of me? They said, you're the guy that bought everybody cigarettes because you were older than everybody else. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's yeah, that's me. But yeah. All right. So I was already in the Navy when September 11th happened. Where were you and what was the driving force that led you to skip college and go join the, the military? 
Well, that's the funny thing. I, I was already in the army when September 11th hit. Uh, was, oh, right. I, okay. Yeah. I joined in 1999. It was prior to us graduating. I, I came from a very long lineage of military history. Recently, I, I brought this up. I was on uh, Marcus Luttrell, who's the lone survivor guy, his podcast, and uh, just chatting with him about it. And I guess he had come from a very long lineage also. And so we've traced our family lineage back as far as a general who served under Napoleon Bonaparte, which is crazy. And then from there, it's like every major conflict, basically. So I always grew up knowing that my grandfather served with the 82nd Airborne in World War II. And then both my uncles had joined during Vietnam. Granted, they stayed stateside. Uh, my dad tried to enlist in the Air Force in Vietnam and was barred uh, because he had asthma as a kid. So he wasn't able to enter, but it, it just kind of ran through the family. And, and even his dad served in the army. So we were just, it was just kind of this thing that the, the sledge men did in our household. And, you know, I came from a lower middle-class family and it was like, Hey, you're going to go to college. Cause both your mom and I went to college and I was like, great. How are we going to do that? And they're like, you better figure it out. And so I was like, well, the army seems to have the best options for me to pay for college. And that's kind of how I ended up there. How did you do in basic training? You know, uh, I write about this funny enough in my book. I didn't do well. <laughs> Actually, when I got there, you go through this processing phase called uh, AG. It's like, they, I think it's like called 20th AG. We always called it 20th AG Disneyland. So you, that's where you go in. They shave your head. And you're expecting it to be just like all out drill sergeant free for all. And, and that's the problem. They literally, it's just like, it's kind of chill. You know, you're, you're getting your head shaved, you're getting your uniforms issued. And then they're like, look, you don't know what's coming up, but it's coming up. That's when you're going to meet your drill sergeants. And I was like, oh, this isn't really so bad. And finally we get shipped out to Sand Hill at Fort Benning, Georgia for the school of infantry. These yellow buses, like what you went to school in every day, they pull up. And I remember this kid just goes, Hey, if we all stick together, they won't, it won't be as bad. And like, we never had a chance, man. That kid got tossed out the back door. It's just like pandemonium. They're yelling. I freak out. I forget. They're telling me like what platoon I'm in. I freak out because everybody's yelling at me and I'm totally terrified. And I, I'm not able to pick up my canteen because they're busy smoking us, which is where you basically exercise until your muscles feel like they're on fire. And then I go and I, I meet up with my platoon and everybody else has their water canteen and um, they take us upstairs and they have the AC turned off. This is Georgia in the middle of the summer, mind you. And then after that moment, I was like, I want to quit. I don't, I don't think I can make this. I don't, I don't think I can go through this. And it had it not been for my two bunk mates, I, I don't think I would have made it through, but I had already been through two, two to three weeks at that point. And they're like, look, just one more day at a time. You've already done two to three weeks. You know, you did the two weeks in the the AG, and then now you're here for a week. Just stick it out. And sure enough, I did, and I graduated. And by the end, um, I actually enjoyed myself, and and I became a soldier. But at first, it was really hard, and, and I was not used to people just being in my face and failing at everything all the time. You know, it's funny. In the Navy, we call it P-Days, processing days. It's two weeks get your head shaved, get your uniforms. And mm -hmm. they teach you, you know, march in formation. They teach you the cadences and stuff. And I remember getting off the bus, they give you, it's like, you got 30 seconds to make a phone call, tell your family you got to, you know, Great Lakes. And I went to Great Lakes in Illinois in the winter. I'm like, oh, I can't be that bad. Chicago can't be that bad in the winter. 
I was like, bullshit. <laughs> oh, dude, I never felt cold like that in my life. And I was on the Russian convoys in 2004. I thought that was cold. No, man, Chicago in winter is brutal, especially that yeah. wind off Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I get there and I'm, I'm, you know, the first thing they do this, you know, get off the phone call. They're like, get off the phone, get off the phone. I'm like, all right, put the phone up. And then I like, get in line and they walk you through, shave your head, get you in, you know, the weird, we call them the Smurfs. So I still have my Smurfs downstairs. Anyway, and uh, they finally get you, you know, figure the first day, I think was 20, I think it was a 29 hour day. And uh, they were like, we want to get one quitter before the end of the day. And oh, said, yeah. until, we get, until we get that quitter, this first day does not end. And uh, this one kid, I'll never forget him, man. He was a little shorter than me, but he broke down just screaming, crying. I want to go home. I want to go home. And like, okay, now we're now the day's over. We're like, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> so, but no, man, uh, boot camp, man, it was it was an experience. You're right, hundred percent. It's like you you take it one day at a time. Some people are born for it. Some people fold, and some people mm-hmm. excel. So it's as simple as that. Yeah. So how many tours did you do for my listeners who don't know? And what do you remember when your boots? first touched enemy soil so i did two tours uh, a lot of my background and i, and I guess I'll, I'll catch everybody up to speed so i went to fort benning georgia for you know um basic training school of infantry at uh sand hill there and then i went to fort bragg north carolina to the john f kennedy special warfare center in school because i scored high enough on my asfab that they were like hey they have this like unit called civil affairs it's part of the special operations community i was like that sounds cool (laughs) what i didn't know is like you get sent a lot of places there's a lot of training that goes with it so i graduate from SWIC. that's what we call it the john f kennedy special warfare school i go to defense language institute in monterey california to learn another language which is funny because at the time my unit is in the southern command so you have spanish french or portuguese as your choice of a language (laughs) so uh, I choose Spanish. I get home three months later. And at this point, you know, the, the towers have fallen in 2001. This is 2003. We have just invaded Iraq. And I, I knew we were invading Iraq because all my unit was going, but I was at Defense Language Institute. And they're like, hey, you're going to Afghanistan. And I was like, what the hell? Everybody else is in Iraq. So in 2003, I get orders to go to Afghanistan. And then in 2006, so from 2003 to 2004, I'm in Afghanistan on the border with Pakistan at a firebase called Organi. And then in 2006, I uh, actually volunteer for a mission going to Ramadi, Iraq during the surge, which is the most violent city on earth at the time. Um, It's like where everybody was. Jocko Willink was there. Chris Kyle was there. I mean, it was just, it was a madhouse um, during that time period. And we we can talk more about that, but... Uh, the first thing that I remember when the boots hit the ground was was this. We we land in Kandahar Airfield. And mind you, this is 2003, and so they haven't really cleared anything. There's actually a building where you go to get mail, and it's where the Rangers jumped in. It's called Taliban Last Stand. And there's just bullet holes all through it. So I saw that the next day. But the, the first memory, we land, and the Air Force crew chief, you know, they lower the, the ramp, and they're like, hey, listen up. They're like, stay on the tarmac, tarmac only. They're like, this place is heavily mined. If you step off the tarmac, you will go boom. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> so that was literally my first memory. And at that point, I got scared. Two Army Commendation Medals, Iraq and Afghanistan Campaign Medals, and the Bronze Star. Do you remember the citation that accompanied your Bronze Star? 
Yeah, I actually have uh, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, because I got Wounded in Action, and then two Army Accommodation Medals, Iraq, Afghanistan. There, there's uh, a ton of stuff. The uh, Bronze Star Citation is is weird to some degree. The citation is is basically for combat operations during the Battle of Ramadi in 2006. They wrote it very generically, but it didn't encompass like a lot of actually, you, you know, you literally have two sentences that encompass an entire award citation. One of my Army Commendation Medals literally reads, you know, for meritorious achievement during an intense anti-coalition you know ambush your ability to sustain injury because that's what they teach you your ability to sustain injury and deliver immediate medical attention to like a united states soldier reflects great credit upon you blah 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 and and that's how they boil it down the bronze star citation was specifically for my 15 months in ramadi during the most violent portion of the war and i was in a a four-man what's called a, a civil affairs team alpha and my four-man team walked out with five bronze stars between the, the four of us, one Army Accommodation Medal, and two of those bronze stars had Valor devices for heroism under fire. We're going to talk about um, your comrade who fell in battle a little bit, but I do want to say I was going through your website, reading all about you, and you said something on your website that's kind of stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And for my listeners, I'm hoping you can expand on this quote and give it some context. And that is, every day you wake up in Afghanistan, you're a dead man. So one of the things that happened was my best friend Kyle got killed. I, uh, there's literally a photo of him that uh, sits next to me right here. I'm I'm looking at him right now. Then and he was a he was a journalist. He wanted to be a journalist, and he was a a Marine Embassy guard before he moved over to the Army. And he wanted to move into kind of that special operations community. He already spoke Portuguese. He came to to replace me after a nine month tour in Afghanistan. And at the time, I had been injured. I'd been wounded in combat when a 107 millimeter rocket exploded about seven feet from my position. Uh, it was packed with C4, so it makes them wildly inaccurate. But they had a spotter, which is somebody that helps like adjust the fire. And so, I like my world went black. I had the option to go home, and I chose to stay behind. And so, I got put in the headquarters element and just answered the radio most of the time for a, a good month and a half. And I'm in a cast at this point because it shattered my wrist. And I, I had taken superficial shrapnel to my my back and just my arms and stuff. But my, my friend Kyle, he comes to replace us because we're going home. And he, he looks at me one day and he was like, hey, man, how did you do it? And I was like, do, do what? He was like, how did you survive here? Like you literally got wounded in action. You're still around. You're still laughing. Like, how did you make it through this? And I said, Kyle, to be honest, I was really scared when I first got here. In fact, I I tried to get out and go into the border. I wanted to stay in the headquarters element because of how scared I I actually was. And I said, but you know, I had a conversation with my team chief and, and uh, we went forward together and I, I said, I actually found out that I enjoyed it, but there's, there's a trick to all of this. I said, uh, you literally have to wake up every morning and kind of think that you're dead, that you're just kind of like the walking dead. And and uh, they popularized this. It's funny enough in, in the TV show, The Walking Dead. And and long before, you know, that show was ever a thing, I, I told him this. And I said, uh, I said, my trick was is that I just became comfortable with the fact that I was going to die. I said, and every day that I got to live was just kind of another gift. And so every morning that I woke up breathing, I was happy. 
and and I had convinced myself every night before I went to bed that tomorrow was probably just another day to catch a bullet or a rocket or something and uh, make it through. And so the the tough part is is like as as true as those words are to a certain degree, I've regretted them most every day of my life because of the simple fact that a week later Kyle was killed in action. And so I was like, man, you know, that the last thing you say to your friend is basically like, hey, convince yourself you're dead anyways. Don't be a wimp about it. Ha 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 ha. As opposed to I wish you would have just hugged him and told him, you know, hey man, it's gonna be okay. You got this. Like everybody gets scared. Everyone um has this stuff. But that's that's literally it. You you kind of almost become somewhat of a nihilist when you're overseas because you just get to this point where you're you're not afraid to die, but you're afraid of dying like a coward. And that's what it was for me. You mentioned your friend just now, Kyle. Tell us about him. How did you meet him? And uh, how did you two become (laughs) friends? So, uh, like I said, Kyle was a a former Marine um, who switched over to the Army. He was the most gregarious person that I've ever met in my entire life, who just had a zest for life. (laughs) He was crazy. He He was literally like the definition of crazy, but he loved life so much that he would just be driving his car and we'd be, we'd be driving together and he'd just like start honking his horn and waving at everybody or flipping people off. I don't know. Uh, he would just do that sometimes. And he'd be like, dude, life is beautiful, man. It's just awesome. And it, it was infectious. People just gravitated to Kyle. And so as we became friends and he started staying with, with my parents, even when I w- wasn't in town, and my parents started viewing him just kind of as their other son. He had his own key to our, our house. And while I was gone, you know, he would come over, check on my parents, make sure that they were okay, cook him a salmon dinner. Like, and he, every time he would come over, he would drop his pants and moon my mom. <laughs> he was a crazy, kind of crazy guy, but we had so much fun together, you know, just talking about life and love and what we were going to do with our lives. And then just at, you know, kind of have his life cut short. I think in some ways, my own survivor guilt has propelled me into the position that I'm in as being an author and a journalist and a writer myself, because that's what he wanted to be. And and so uh, that's that's really how we met. And that's kind of the legacy that I carry every day when I sit in front of a computer and start typing words. You know, it's amazing you said that, because I want to ask you, you mentioned earlier your book. Now it's time I want to actually ask you about it. And that's you know, the book has got an incredible title as it is, Where Carrots Go to Die. At what point in your life did you sit down and decide to put pen to paper? So here's what's interesting. Uh, recently, I began working with a veteran organization called Vet TV. They're like, they do streaming comedy for like veterans and kind of this this whole nine yards. And I, and I met the guy who handles their social media and he's got like 1.5 million followers on TikTok. He's doing his own thing, but he's also a combat wounded veteran, got wounded in action in the Helmand province with the Marine Corps. And we were just talking when I was out there in California. And I said, hey, man, like, you know, how did you get into this whole thing? And he said, you know, when I got home, I didn't want to talk about anything. Uh, He said, and I just buried all of it. And he said, I was just going to work the best that I could and be the social media expert and prove that I could do stuff outside of the military and the military was the past and everything else. And he said, and the problem was it just literally ate me 
from the inside out. And he said, and it wasn't until one day somebody noticed some of my Marine Corps stuff, like in the background of a video. And I did a video of it and it just absolutely blew up and it just brought back all these memories. And I realized like, this is what I need to talk about and people need to hear it. Um, and so out of that, I, I was very much like him. And when I came home, nobody knew anything. Uh, it was just like the war was continually ongoing. And everybody that I knew had served, but I was just like, I'm going to get on with my life. I'm going to get a job. I'm, I'm going to do whatever. And so I, you know, I got out and moved into geopolitical intelligence and nobody really knew that I was a veteran at all. Um, most of my medals and awards, even though they're behind me now, they literally sat in a box underneath my bed for, for years. My award citations were in folders and I just, I kind of just left it alone. I, ne I never talked about it. My wife didn't know about it um, because we had met like after the war. And then suddenly, um, <laughs> just like that other guy, Matt, I wrote a piece on Medium for Memorial Day, just talking about the injuries that soldiers face and the moral injuries that they have to deal with, the psychological damage that occurs to their sense of right and wrong when we have to do things that, that violate that, like shooting a woman or a child or watching a friend die, um, all the things that encompass war. And, and um, so I, I wrote that. And it, it blew up. It went stupid viral. It was like a million views or something insane. And I was like, holy crap, what on earth? Um, and so I asked my editor at Medium, because I had started writing at that point. And I was I was writing about, you know, mental health issues and and life lessons and journalism and, and everything else. But um, I asked my editor at Medium, I said, hey, what do you guys want me to to write more on? And she said, oh, man. That war piece was awesome. We want to hear more of that. And I was like, what on earth? And, and mind you, this is like an entity and an organization that leans heavily left. You know, my editor, she's a, a strong black woman. Her mom's black and her dad's white. And so, and she's, she's dealing with like all the, the ramifications of that. And she tells me this and then, and then she says this, and this is what really got me. She said, and I told her, I was like, I'm not going to write about that stuff. That was like a one-off thing. And she goes, well, that's a travesty. And I was like, what do you mean? She said, you realize you are the smallest minority in the entire United States. And I was like, what? She goes, less than 1% of you have fought in the longest running wars in the history of the United States. And she goes, you guys come home. You won't talk about it. She said, and we need to hear these stories. And instead, they're lost to the annals of history. And that's the travesty. And it really just like pierced my heart. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to start, you know, kind of kind of writing more on this. And as I wrote more on it, uh, book agents began to take notice. And I had a couple reach out to me and eventually signed with one, put together a proposal for publishers and uh, got signed. And that's really kind of how it all came to fruition. That's incredibly detailed mm -hmm. and vividly describes <laughs> the hell that is a combat zone. Ben, how long did it take you to write it? Uh, it took a year. Everyone's like, wow, like that's fast, you know, because some people tinker. And I'm more the person that like when I have this story that burns inside me, like I have to get it out. So but I, I had two small kids at the time and I literally just had to become disciplined the same way that I was disciplined in the military. I had to become disciplined as far as writing a book. And so what I would do is I would wake up at 545 every single morning before my kids or my wife was awake. I would go pour a pot of, of coffee, 
Um, and I would sit down on my couch and I would write for an hour and, and go from there. And I, I realized I was really fresh in the morning and sometimes I could work on it. Other times, like when I would get back into certain events or scenarios, it was just too much. Other times in the afternoon, if I could sneak away, I would go to a coffee shop or a brewery. And there was a, a really great brewery here in Colorado Springs called Brass Brewery. And the owner also fought in Ramadi at the same time as me. And it's just, it's it's all like military nostalgia and veteran stuff all over the walls and the space. And so out of that, it just, it really was, for me, I was able to get my head back into that mindset. So it was either in the morning or I'd go out there and, uh, and that really kind of just took the time and, and mm-hmm. that's what I did. For my listeners who don't know, where did the title of the book come from? <laughs> so this is fun. Uh, and I have mentioned this uh, and, and I, I love telling the story. When I was in um, Ramadi, Iraq in 2006, I read, uh, so when you're overseas, you literally either run missions or you have downtime. Uh, there's like kind of no in between. And so I would read a lot. And most most Joes and most soldiers and sailors, we read. That's what we'll do or we'll watch movies or or I suppose some people played video games. Uh, I didn't have that where I was at. So when I was on the combat outpost, there's like literally nothing. There's not like internet and all that. So I would I would have books. And I picked up the book, I Am Legend. And forget what you know about the movie because the movie is just trash. It's just garbage. Will Smith, it's, it doesn't even follow the book. Um, the actual book was written in the 50s. It's influenced everybody from like Stephen King to like the great horror writers. But it feels like it was written like in the 1970s. And it's about this guy who's the last man on earth and everybody else has become vampires. So like, well, you had these weird zombie things and Will Smith. But the last three words in the book without ruining anything for you are I am legend. And I was like, that is sick. Oh my God. Like that is like the title or the last three words. And I was like, if I ever wrote something, I would do something like that. And so that's what I did. I came up with this title because of the fact that what I realized is it in combat, in life, in relationships, take your pick. You have a choice to live courageously or you have a choice to die as a coward. And so for me, I realized that in war, I had to sacrifice the inner coward in order to to be able to do my job. I had to sacrifice for something bigger than me. I had to sacrifice for the man next to me on the on the right. So I had to kill that inner coward. Or if I didn't do that, I would die as a coward. And the same is true in life, career, relationships. When we refuse to give our life and service of something greater, or we get paralyzed by fear, or we're afraid to confront our trauma or past, there's nothing courageous about that. That's the coward's way out. But if you want to grow stronger and persevere, then you have to kill that inner coward. So my point was that either way, this is where a coward has to go to die. And so the last few words of my book are either way, a coward has to die. Um, which kind of encompasses like the whole journey that you see inside my book. It doesn't give anything away. You just now know the title. <laughs> what has the response to the book been like? And did you get any pushback from the DOD? Uh, so there, <laughs> when I was when I was writing it, I had a couple of tidbits that I was privy to as far as events that had happened on the border where 
public release and CIA and all this other stuff, it didn't happen the way that it did. So I approached my publisher and I was like, hey, here's the deal. This, 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 and this. And they were like, look, we put out a book that was all like open source stuff. And this chick verified it with the DOD and it got strung up for like two years. And they're like, we recommend you take that portion out and anything that is open source, you can leave in. But the rest of the stuff that's like, you know, it is not verifiable necessarily, take it out. And so I was like, all right, crap. So we we skipped that process. So I took stuff out with regard to, to the DOD so it could just immediately streamline and go through and I, I wouldn't have to worry about anything. With regard to the aspect of uh, the response, it's been overwhelmingly positive. You know, I'm technically a first time author as far as this. And, and what you can hope for is that it does well enough that hopefully your publisher likes it and your agent and everything else. And out of that, the sales have, have been really good. It won the New York City Big Book Award, been submitted for the Penn Literary Award with for um, nonfiction, which is like basically the Academy Awards or an Oscar for a book. It's also up for like, I think an independent press award and then the nonfiction authors association for, for memoir. So out of that, the, the response has been phenomenal for me because it feels like veterans. And this was the reason why I wrote the book. Most of the stories right now that are coming out are, are by your tier one guys and, you know, Navy SEALs, or, you know, you have Tim Kennedy who did his scars and stripes and, and th these are all guys that are the top creme de la creme and they're talking about battles and, and cool, cool guy stuff and, and props to them. But the other 99% of us fought in the longest running wars in the history of the U S and it, it didn't encapsulate the humanity, the complexity and the barbarity of combat. And I wanted to write a piece that was absolutely true. It didn't paint me as some type of hero, but oftentimes kind of more like an idiot who didn't really know what he was doing from time to time. And then allow other people and invite them into that process because the so many civilians really don't grasp what happened in the last 20 years and how we basically institutionalized our veterans and sent them on repeated back to back to back to back to back deployments. And then we come home and they're like, dear God, what is wrong with all these vets killing themselves? And why are they struggling so hard to reintegrate into society? And I'm like, well, here's what happened to us overseas. And now we have to live with that. And out of that, the civilian response has been fantastic. And then the veteran response has been phenomenal because the guys have told me, I feel like somebody finally told my story. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here. But we'll be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Benjamin Sledge. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long, deep breaths. You know, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of the show, and we will be right back. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. 
Let's Deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy. Hey, this is Patrick Baker, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single, Sorrow, available on all major streaming platforms. And you can check my site out at patrickbakermusic.com. Don't leave my upper Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hey, it's Presley Tennant, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find my brand new EP, 600 Miles, on all streaming platforms right now. Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun with Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, Use promo code DUVAL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. Hello there, Gigawater Gang. I'm Kina, the host of the boozy and delightfully foul-mouth comedy podcast, Historical AF. I'm a nerdy public historian that is joined by a special guest each week to deliver funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Past topics have included the magical manhood of Russia's mad monk Rasputin, my hot take the aliens did not build the pyramids, 
Serial killers that both my parents happen to meet as children. Listen, I know what you're thinking. Kina, how do you even exist right now? Also, who was it? All right, I'll tell you. Spoiler alert, it was Sean Wayne Gacy and Mark Allen Smith. Anywho, we can't forget the spooky. I've covered topics ranging from the ghosts of Anne Boleyn to the night marchers in Hawaii. Don't look at them, guys. If you do, you have to strip naked and you have to lay on the dirt. Dim's the rules. You can listen and subscribe to Historical AF wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Historical AF Pod. And finally, you can check out the website for links to listen, sources, because citing is sexy, photos, and more at historicalafpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 120 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with Army combat veteran and best-selling author, Benjamin Sledge. Ben, I've asked other veterans who have been on my show this question, and it's okay, I want to ask you the same one. And it is, I have my emotions. What were your emotions during the fall of Afghanistan and the end of the war? Uh, I was a giant mess. I had to get back in counseling, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah, that, I don't. So here's what's weird. You know, Iraq fell and like ISIS and ISIL took over. And I was like, well, this sucks. For some reason, it was like Afghanistan was like just a gut punch. And maybe it was because I got injured over there. You know, I got I got wounded in action. So my blood's are literally over there. But man, when it happened, I was like. I was just angry at first. And then I was like up, you know, wandering that the halls of my house and um, couldn't sleep. You know, I'm texting all my buddies I was overseas with and we're like, F this, you know, this bullshit. What the fuck? You know, just mad. And I was just like, dude, we we literally gave them 20 years. And then the Afghan National Army and the entire government just collapsed. But the thing was, is like, I inherently knew that that was going to happen. I just didn't think it was going to happen that fast because having been over there and having, you know, worked in the geopolitical expertise of, of that country, it's very tribal. They don't care. There's no national Afghan identity. You know, it's more homage to like whoever the local warlord is in that area. And then you have autonomous regions like Wazuristan and you have different languages there's three languages that are are spoken there urdu pashtun and dari and the country is very fragmented and you know they call it the graveyard of empires for a reason <laughs> and i was mad I, I i was more mad at the way that we pulled out because it was literally like we ran out of there with like a, a wounded dog with its tail between its legs we, we could have just told the taliban like look we're the u.s military we'll get out of here we're going to get all of our people out. And if you guys screw with us, we're going to drone strike you to death. And they could have done that. Instead, it was handled so poorly. 
that we literally it was an international embarrassment we like were loading people up like we didn't know what we were doing people had to run special operations missions like just to get their interpreters out and we still left people behind it's turned into one of the largest humanitarian crises and then on top of that we had a retaliatory uh drone strike which killed 13 civilians it didn't even take anybody out so so i just look at that and i go man i was up really early one morning it was like four in the morning i'd been wandering around i text my buddy he's a vietnam vet um he he flew for the air force during vietnam and i just i shot him a text that said now i know how you feel and he he understood and he goes, yeah, you do, and I'm angry for you. The one that got me, the VA. I have very <laughs> mixed feelings about the VA. But yeah, me too. That afternoon when Afghanistan, when it first happened, I got an email. I think everybody got the same email. Yep. It said, Afghanistan, let's talk about it. And I'm sitting there like, when the when did the fuck did the, the VA actually give a shit, you know, like this? And I was just sitting there just reading it. And it, it was just, I, I was working in another place, and I just, I wouldn't talk to anybody. I didn't want to hear it from my friends, my family. I didn't want to hear it from nobody. Yeah, and it was it, it was about three weeks. I just would like my brother. I tried to talk to my brother. My brother wouldn't talk about it either. He just like, fuck it. I don't want to talk to anybody. Seeing people not falling out of the sky trying to grab onto planes, just mm-hmm. that's what did it for me. I was like, that's just the worst. Handing so, babies over that were sick, yeah. you know, over the wall, and then yeah. you know, it was the same for me. My wife literally came to me one day and she's like, "You are a crazy person." You, you need to like get do some counseling again. And I was like, ah, you're right. I'm like just so mad and so I was angry. And you know, I, I would talk to I remember I talked to this vet who who hadn't done combat and he, I think he had like served in like Panama or something and trying to give me a, a lesson. And I, I was just furious at that point. And I was like, you need to shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. so you yourself are certified in crisis response, trauma care, and suicide prevention. Yeah. In your opinion, what could the government be doing better to help soldiers returning from combat overseas? Uh, so the biggest thing that I've, you know, and I, I train a lot of entities now. I've, I've worked with uh, the Volunteers of America to to train them up on like, you're, okay, you're a civilian. How do you talk to the veterans that you interact with, whether they're homeless or not? Colorado State University here is running a master's program for that specifically for first responders. And so they've had me as a a guest speaker there. And then I've trained under uh, Dr. Kent Corso, who's one of the leading suicidologists, Air Force veteran. The thing that I have I've really seen is this. When you exit the military, there's not this transitionary process as far as teaching you how to reintegrate into society. And most people, when they leave the military or they get home for more or whatever it is, they go to their home of record, which is, and they expect everything to be the same, that their buddies from high school are still the same or college or whatever. And it's not. The world has moved on. Uh, and I remember I got home from Afghanistan and I was like, have you guys heard this song? Hey, yeah, it totally kicks ass. And they're like, that song is so old. <laughs> and I was like, what, man? Like, and movies are old and all types of stuff. So you're kind of out of the loop. And then you enter a world where legitimately in the military you know this leaders eat last like the highest ranking official will always eat last and if there's no food that general is not going to eat but the lowest enlisted guy he always eats first because you take care of your troops then on top of that you have people in combat doesn't matter their skin color race ethnic identity whatever they're willing to take a bullet for you you're their brother or sister in arms 
And so you're in that environment for a really long time, and then you get out and you enter the corporate world, right? CEOs eat, always eat first. They just crap all over their employees. Most of the majority of them do. Everybody else is trampling each other on the way to the top. And things like honor, integrity, leadership, personal courage are thrown out the window. And so it's a very jarring experience, whether it's a combat veteran or non-combat veteran, to come out of an environment where that's where you're taught values and, and everything else, and then it just goes to pot. And so I, I really feel that like a lot of veterans are struggling with these transitionary disorders now to where they don't know how to reintegrate. And the military is basically just like, here's some paperwork. Bye. Oh, by the way, don't forget to go to the VA, you know, and then we'll, yeah. and then here's the other thing that's crazy. In the military, they tell you you're strong enough to go to war, to take down the enemy, to, you know, personal courage and, and, you know, never leave a man behind and never give up, never accept defeat. The warrior ethos, never give up, never accept defeat, never leave a fallen comrade behind, place the mission first. Okay. The first thing that they tell you in the VA is you're not strong enough to handle life anymore because you're a veteran. So we're going to put you on mood altering drugs that put you in an alternate reality. And so the, the messages that veterans are being taught is you were once too strong, but we broke you and now we can't, and now we can't put you back together again. You're Humpty Dumpty. And that's the problem that I'm seeing. And so when you have this mindset that literally is that you're being led to believe that you're, you're too weak, of course, it, and everybody's out, nobody has your back anymore. Of course, you're going to want to kill yourself. So that's, that's the big issue that we're seeing. The one thing I saw, and I've been seeing a lot since I got out, is the world has moved on to the point where they want a four-year degree now. Veterans who are coming out of the active duty, now they're going to have to go to wait four more years, go to school and what have you, just to be able to afford to put on the food on the table in a good-paying job. And I, that's the part that I'm seeing that's been a lot of the push and pull that's of veterans. That's the obstacles that they're having to overcome. Some people just not meant to go to college. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, the, that's the truth. Not everybody is meant to be a doctor. Not everybody is meant to be a lawyer. The other part about it is as well, and you touched it on as well, is the world has moved on for the time that you know we go through. And so when you're in the military, they get what I call the, you know, the <laughs> the hand job routine is basically you come out, all the civilians like, oh yeah, go army, go navy, we got your back. All you know, go troops, go troops. But the second you step out of our of active duty, they don't give a shit about you. Yeah. The, I think the coolest thing that I've seen is there are veterans now that run organizations that are helping people transitioning out of the military to translate their experience in the military to tangible, actionable items that will go into the corporate world. So like if you're in a guy in the infantry and you're like, well, I'm a trigger puller, you know, how does that yeah. translate into anything? Right. There are ways that they can do that. And corporate America is looking for that leadership. They value people that have that grit and that determination because they're dealing with a lot of people that don't. And that's, like you said, that's the big problem. How do you translate this experience into something tangible that corporate America is going to want? And that's that's the real challenge that the, the military is not grasping on. And luckily, there are some good veteran organizations that are doing that. I support other in this area, veteran-owned businesses. That's very important to who I am. That's not just me being like, oh, a box to check. It's actually something that I truly believe in. And that's the other thing, like I said, is, and I don't know how it is for you, but veterans that I know in this area, when people say like, thank you for your service, we cringe. I don't know about you, but it's just, it's, it's not something that resonates well with me. And I'm always, I mean, I always be like, oh, you know, thanks and what have you, but I walk away and I walk away for about 30 minutes and my head's just like, 
really? I didn't do that much. I didn't do, I'm not, you know, storming, you know, the castle. I'm not, you know, you know I'm not loving yeah, the beaches. People. Yeah, I'm not yeah. storming Normandy, you know, and that, that part, it's like, it's kind of like you say, it's kind of like the false, you get that false bravado. Like, I didn't really deserve that praise that will have you. And that's the part that I've always had to rub my head around. But I don't know how that is for you. Do you, do you have that same issue if someone says that to you? Uh, I used to. So I, I used to be really offended because it was like, man, you don't even know what I went through. And I remember I was talking. So uh, my buddy that I got injured with I, and I tell our story like it's literally the opening chapter of my book. Years later, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm complaining. I was like, they don't know what I went through and blah, 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 blah and, all, and they just want to take the, the slacker way out. It's slacktivism, right? And he goes, hey, man, why you got to shit all over somebody that's just trying to express their gratitude and their thanks? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, dude, they don't know what we went through. And they're, they're not going to grasp that. He said, but they're trying the best that they can. And he said, and I, I want to at least honor their effort as opposed to just being like, ah, oh, you know, whatever. And I said, well, what do you tell them when they say, you know, thank you for your service? He goes, I just look at him and I say, thank you for your support. That means a lot to me. And I was like, okay. And, and out of that, and then here's the other thing too. There's this like gatekeepery crap that happens like with the military where everyone's like stacks of wards and badges and dumb stuff against each other. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then you have like your veteran influencers that get like super gatekeepery too. And, um, and they're like, Oh, if this or X, Y, Z. And then, and, and I remember, I think somebody was like, I, I read a comment one time. They were like, if you're a veteran and you go get free stuff on veterans day, you're a dirt bag. I was like, these are literally companies that are trying to express their thanks the best way that they know how. I'm going to go eat all the free stuff I can because 364 days out of the year, they don't give a rip about me. So on the one yeah. day that they do, I'm going to go get all the free Applebee's and chilies and, and Buffalo Wild Wings that I could stuff my face with. And I did that this year. And, and I, I relayed that story. I was just like, I'm thankful that there, because here's the deal. Like it, we've gone, imagine if we were getting spit on like, in vietnam mm -hmm. we're not the vietnam veterans paid so that we people would actually thank us for our service and realizing that they did a great disservice so for me it, now i used to be like you know very angry <clears throat> and now after i talked with my buddy he really just changed my perspective and so now i just say i really appreciate your support thank you so you've much. just changed mine i'm not gonna <laughs> lie to you I, no bullshit i'm seriously i'm sitting i've never once heard somebody explain it to me so Maybe that's something I might start working my mind around. So thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. Go get that. all the free stuff on Veterans Day, dude. Veteran with me. <laughs> I get my free oil change and I get a cup of coffee. And the only time I ever like, hey, do you have thing is uh, Lowe's and Home Depot. I get my. Oh, they, yeah. They, they have a great. They have a great discount. And that shit goes a long way there. It so. really does. So. Yeah. All right. So I want to ask you one question. And this is going to sound completely off the wall, but I do want to ask this. Ben, how are you doing? I mean, I, how, are, how are you coping? Are you okay? Yeah. You know, there's good days, bad days, obviously. I've been good for a long time. I've, I've been in and out of, of counseling for years. I've done everything from post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, counseling to did marriage counseling. I've done EMDR. 
12 step even not for drugs or alcohol, but just because I kind of came home because I hated myself and I hated who I was. And so I've, I've done a lot of work. I put in the work and, you know, I'm happy now. I live, you know, in Colorado, I live right on the footsteps of Fort Carson. I'm the happiest I've been because of the fact, I think that I'm once again, surrounded by my brothers in arms. Like I literally hear revelry and taps every single day from my house. And I live, I'm 10 minutes from trailheads. And, you know, my grandfather, he, when he moved to Colorado, I often wondered if, if that's what he needed to, you know, just to stare at the mountains, kind of have some peace and quiet, just have a little bit slower pace of life. And some of my buddies, they've, they've done the same thing. My, my team sergeant, Paul Gonzalez, he lives on a homestead now in, in Kansas and they've got chickens and goats and, you know, he's just, he's got a slower pace of life. And, and I like that. And granted, I'm still going fast paced, but there's something about just nature being restorative and then just being around brothers and sisters in arms again. And then on top of that, I, I think that's the biggest thing that we lose after we get out of the military is that sense of purpose, because you're literally being told what to do, what the objective is and, and go and get it. And then when you don't have that anymore, it's tough. And so I have a, a profound sense of purpose now to, to help other veterans and, and other people in my life. And so I feel very blessed. It's been a hard year. Uh, I will not lie about that. Um, you know, my mom had a, a minor cardiac event. Dad has cancer at the moment. I had an emergency appendectomy in October. <laughs> yeah, wife got laid off. Like, I, it, it, there's just a lot it, as far as like, you know, 2020 was weird in its own way, but mostly we were just like sitting on the couch watching Netflix, eating cinnamon bears. That's what I was doing at least. And then this year, I'm just like, man, life is hard. But for me, life is also beautiful. And I think because of the fact that I've lived through some of the worst experience that a human being can go through in their own life, every day I can wake up and see the beauty in life. And so I continue to do that. And so I would say I'm good. Awesome. All right. As we enter the final phase of the interview, and you kind of just touched on it a little bit, uh, I always like to ask one fun question is, you know, what do you like to do in, to relax your free time? Are there any shows you're into, you know, anything <laughs> like that? Yeah. Uh, so my wife and I are both like cinephiles, you know, like, I mean, that's such a weird word for like, we love TVs and, and film, but uh, my favorite show that I just watched recently was the peripheral on Amazon prime. That was sick. Just I'm a, I'm a huge sci-fi nut. Uh, I love reading. I, I typically reading about four books at the same time. Love writing. I love hiking. I went, uh, you know, this, this last weekend, my wife was out of town with their sisters. And so I took the kids, we went ice skating and, and went to this like dinosaur resource museum up in the mountains and then just spending time with my friends. And then also the other thing that I love is I love good craft beer and whiskey. So I've gotten big into that. I really want to get my Cicerone certification, which is like a sommelier for beer and just, you know, good company with good friends and good food and barbecue. So it, I'm just kind of all over the map. I like this idea of being a Renaissance man, a, a polymath. What's next for you? You got another book in you? Are you going to do some talks or what? <laughs> yeah, I got more books for sure. I've always wanted to get into fantasy and science fiction. So we'll see how that transitions. I've also wanted to write more nonfiction, continue to write on medium. A, a lot of it, you know, I'm hoping that as the book kind of gains more credibility that I'll be able to do more keynote talks. I've, I've uh, spoken with or spoken to the United States Census Bureau alongside, you know, congressional representatives and, and everything else and had very, very, very positive feedback and just continue to kind of uh, travel and educate and then just help veterans and, 
and kind of move forward from there. What is the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? <laughs> so I, like I said, I write predominantly on the platform medium.com. That's where I just write essays here and there. Uh, if you want to grab my book, Where Cowards Go to Die, it's available at all major book retailers, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Audible, the whole nine yards. If you want to follow me on social media, I am on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, where I just had a post go viral there. It's like 1.4 million views at this point about the day I got injured, <laughs> funny enough, which is weird. But I, I talk about my experiences in combat and life and and everything else there. So uh, that's really simple. It's Benjamin Sledge or Benjamin C. Sledge. There's also my website, which lists all of it, which is benjaminsledge.com. Awesome. All right, Ben, I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would want to say to the people of earth? <laughs> the people of earth. What's the one thing that I would want to say to the people of earth? Um, I think the biggest thing, well, let me preface it by this. I've watched, you know, in my work in mental health, people really struggle and think that they can't make it through. And I would, I would tell the people of earth, you're a lot stronger than you think. And you have a lot more resilience than you know. And if you will put in the effort, time and energy, what you can do and the uniqueness that you have in your day-to-day -day life, because there will never be another person. Like there will only be one Benjamin Sledge ever. And, you know, there will only be one you ever. And so out of that, um, you are uniquely gifted to bring something to this world. And so therefore you have an obligation to do that. Brilliant. Love it. The book is Where Cowards Go to Die, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Ben, my old friend, good luck to you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. Honor to be here. I'm making that to Colorado. The first cigar is on me, okay? All right. I will take <laughs> right. you up on that. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 120. I want to thank Ben for taking the time to come on the show. What a powerful interview. And as you can tell from my speaking with him, He's just an all-around great guy, and I think he is destined for more great things in the years to come. Tune in again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so go ahead and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us. We are still enjoying our partnership with the Amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there, and we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we selected T-shirts we wanted on our store, and we have everything from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Pride Shirts, Norm MacDonald, and so much more. Go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tea Public. And we want to thank Tea Public again for being such great partners with us. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, go find a veteran and in a heartfelt and sincere tone, thank them for their service. You may not like the answer you get back, but like Ben said, and I am going to put it into practice, thank you for your support. No star, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth.
this has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.